This episode is sponsored by Spira, a Burdantics Green Quadrant Award winner. Get the information, tools, and advice you need for your environmental, social, and governance journey at spira.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric. Climate change is here, and so is the requirement to understand and report the risks that it brings to your business. As your partner in sustainability, Schneider Electric can help you navigate the winds of change. To see how, visit se.com forward slash climate risk. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. On this week's edition, deforestation takes root in the climate talks, why Republicans think law firms should lawyer up, redefining industrial resource efficiency, and what your suppliers wish your company knew. We're yanking the supply chain this week on 350. It's November 18th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're so glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, holding down the fort on the U.S. side is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hey, Joel. It's great to hear from you. I hope you're doing well there on the other side of the world. I am. I'm uh, just uh, so you know, I'm in the media center, which is in the, the blue zone uh, at, at COP27. It's uh, mm-hmm. uh couple hundred meters from where the negotiations are taking place. So there's a little background noise and I hope you'll bear with it there. But uh, yeah, it's been a crazy, uh, well, for me, about a little over a week. Wow. So I'm curious what, where you've been spending most of your time have, have, um, well, tell us about what you've done while you're there, but I'm also curious to hear what struck you as the most um, salient things happening on the ground. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's just to set the scene. I mean, the, there's multiple things. This is like a world's fair in a lot of ways or a lot of moving parts. There's certainly the climate negotiations at the center of all this and all the delegations from close to 200 uh, countries. Uh, There's the uh, exhibition area within the blue zone, which is where countries and companies and others have their, their, you know, beating their chests, thing. but also lots of meeting rooms and, and, and hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of, of panel discussions and things, as well as their own uh, bilateral meetings with their whoever their stakeholders and partners are, and then there's the rest of the of, of the region where I don't know thousands of events. I've probably gone to thirty or forty of them on the past uh, seven or eight days um, that are put on by NGOs, uh, business groups, um, uh, so many things. And that's before you get to the dinners and receptions and all that. It's just it's so trying to capture this is like trying to capture a city, which, of course, this is 30,000 or so people here. Um, I think, you know, I will say, dare I say that this year's COP, and I've been to the last several, has a slight odor, aroma, I guess I should say, of optimism, um, which is, you know, (laughs) not the way it usually uh, comes out. Usually Mm -hmm. it's frustration. And of course, there's plenty of that. And we can talk about some of the frustrations. But I do feel that there's a little more more optimism this year than I've seen at 
uh, the last hmm. several cops. Oh, that's that's interesting to hear since you're there because I, and maybe this is just because I'm hearing this from journalists and we, we tend to be a skeptical bunch, but uh, I'm, I'm hearing a little concern over the 1.5 um, aspiration um, and that the countries might not want to hold to that. That That's one thing that I've been hearing from afar. Um, I have been hearing sort of smatterings of hope on the, the money side. So I guess the question is, what what is it make that, that makes you feel that you're hearing optimism? Like, what is it specifically? Is it a specific thing or is it just general, generally people feel like, hey, we're not fighting too much um, in the in the negotiation rooms? Uh, well, I didn't say there aren't big challenges, Heather. I mean, there's huge and you mm-hmm. named some of them and the whole loss and damage thing. And as we're talking here on on, on Wednesday, November 16th, we don't know how the these negotiations are going to end, what kind of documents right. are going to come out of this. So we'll know more, uh, you know, after the weekend. Uh, but uh, so but I, I do feel that people think we're I feel that we're making a, a little bit more progress or at least we're poised to. And some of that's political, having, you know, what happened in the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, uh, the I think the biggest, loudest, most raucous caucus <laughs> here is uh, Brazilian. Uh, there, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, uh, today on Wednesday, <laughs> um, uh, President-elect Lula uh, showed up, which mm-hmm. just, I mean, people went nuts. Uh, he was here actually uh, in the expo, not just, uh, uh, I guess he's addressing the main uh, mm-hmm. body of diplomats, but uh, he showed up and his wife was here yesterday just talking to indigenous women from Brazil and saying, yeah, I don't want to talk to you. I want to hear from you. And so there's just uh, and, and so between Brazil and the United States, just there, uh, there's there's certainly more hope than there was a year ago with the, the leadership. Um, but, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of thorny issues and and mm-hmm. they're, they're going to you know take, uh, as they always do, many more cops to sort out. Um, I guess the other thing I'll say is that, you know, people often refer to this, I've heard it referred to as the implementation cop, right? They've had cops for those commitments. uh, And and now it's it's about implementing stuff and and getting on with it. I also think it's, this is the finance cop. Um, There's been so much talk about money, uh, obviously the loss and damage conversation, which we don't know how that's going to shake out, at least at this particular time that we're recording the the podcast. Um, But the finance, finance has just been a very, big part of this. Of course, money is yeah. always a part of any climate negotiations, but it's just more prevalent and more on the less on the finger pointing and blame side and the more on the, well, how do we do this? Uh, how do we, right. you know, how do we find the, the money? Who's, who's paying and, and how does it get distributed? So it just feels, uh, is a you know, there's a, an air of progress of, of movement forward, even though, you know, everyone here, I would, Imagine saying we've got a long, long, long way to go. I have two more really specific questions for you. One is, how was the uh, mood on the ground after the visit by U.S. President Joe Biden? Was was what was the reaction to that? You know, I didn't hear a lot of that. Um, you know, it, it's sort of in contrast to to the Brazilian, where uh, and, and we'll play a little bit later some some of the chants going on uh, on the floor. Just uh, we'll sort of use that as our outro music of. Uh, groups of indigenous women just singing and chanting um, and chanting, you know, messages of, of excitement and hope. I didn't hear anybody chanting USA, USA when, <laughs> you know, when, when Biden right. was around. So I think there's, uh, you know, but I think at this point, the world is probably uh, 
pretty skeptical and cynical about U.S. intentions right. uh, and action. Having said that, everybody is still looking to the U.S. for leadership. Right. But I think that uh, it's it's going to be more bottom up than top down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Biden yep. came and did his thing. I didn't hear a lot of buzz about it, to be honest. But, yeah. uh, you know, I think people were really appreciative of all the leading uh, uh, emitters. Uh, you know, India wasn't here. Uh, Russia wasn't here. China wasn't here. Uh, Joe Biden was here. Right. And China was at G20. And um, that, of course, was the other news that kind of was bubbling out this week was that the talks between China and U.S. are starting again. And climate, obviously, is one of those areas where there will be focus. So, any, again, any reaction there on the ground? Any you know, shrugs? You know, yeah, that's... It, it's really hard, Heather, to be tuned into anything outside of what's going on here in Charmel <laughs> right, Shake when, okay. when you're at a cop conference. And in fact, it's it's really hard to, t to tune into anything outside of what's in your immediate field of view to know, you know, what's the big picture. Because as I said, there's, oh, okay. a, there's thousands of moving parts over two weeks uh, and 30,000 or so people. And all you can do is get some snippets. Okay. So I, I said two questions, but I have one last one. Of course, you're there to figure out what and hear from companies and businesses and how they can contribute to all this. So what's the business mood on the ground and, and what's been the business response to the things happening there in Egypt? Yeah, it's been, I think, pretty good. I mean, first of all, uh, having said that, that, that business has not been here in the, in the way that they've been at the last several COPs. Um, mm. And I think that has to do with uh, the, the location, maybe not as favorable as, say, Northern Europe and Glasgow last year. Uh, it may have to do with uh, travel bans and, and, and travel freezes and things that a lot of companies have. So it, it, it hasn't, I haven't seen the number of companies, but I did have a chance to talk to uh, companies and I, and I asked them, I said, what would make COP27 a success for your company? So I'll play five of them now. Uh, they come from uh, MasterCard, Citi, Danone. Uh, Nestle and uh, the Brazilian pulp and paper company, Suzano. Again, I just asked them to introduce themselves and talk about what would make this conference, this COP, a success for their companies. Here's what they had to say. I'm Mike Froman, Vice Chairman and President of Strategic Growth at MasterCard. And what makes COP worthwhile for me is coming and seeing all the exciting new things that various stakeholders are doing, from the business community to NGOs to indigenous communities to address climate change, and leaving COP with a handful of new partnerships that we can take forward together. Hi, my name is Owen Bethel. I'm Environmental Impact Lead for Nestle. For me at COP27, there are two things we really want to see, and that is a continuation of this discussion of the role of the food system as a solution to the climate crisis, or part of the solution. At the moment, there's not enough attention paid to food systems, their impact on biodiversity, on freshwater use, on GHG emissions, and we need to see more political interest in that, more interest from companies in driving a nature-positive and regenerative food system for all. And the second thing really is a little bit more of a nuanced debate about the role of business. We've seen a bit of pushback around big business allegedly holding things up, being a negative force here at COP27, and I, I don't see that myself. I see a lot of companies willing to contribute positively, and we need to call out the bad actors, but celebrate the good actors as well. And we look forward to more constructive engagement in the future. This is Davida Heller, Head of Sustainability Strategy at City. And what makes this COP worthwhile for me is the incredible conversations that have had around key issues related to climate among stakeholders. 
and the events that we've held related to some really key issues around food security, climate finance, and oceans, and really communicating about the reports that we've put out about those topics. I'm Henri Bruxelles, Chief Sustainability and Strategic Business Development Officer at Danone. The week uh, in COP will be a tremendous week because we have discussed and found with partners how to accelerate impact, how to scale up pilots that we have and how to bring some of the big ideas into big actions. So that's where I'm happy with the COP. I'm Cristiano Oliveira. I'm executive manager of new business for Susano, a Brazilian uh, forest-based company. And success at COP27 for us is uh, going beyond the commitments, the promises, and really going towards action and implementation uh, with a sense of urgency uh, that we felt perhaps has been missing in the past few COPs. Uh, we hope that there's a sense of cooperation, space for dialogue, Uh, but really not just talk and chit-chat, uh, but moving beyond that and actually implementation, actually doing things together. And so we are, are very happy to be here to uh, launch our new business, Biomas, uh, together with five partners in the restoration and conservation space to restore and conserve 4 million hectares in 20 years. And we're hoping that also by being here at COP, announcing Biomas, we create new partnerships Uh, with civil society, with academia, and with uh, the public sector. Joel, I don't usually say things like this, but I couldn't help but notice that four out of the five of those folks were men. What's, what's, uh, what significance should I take away from that? Well, I mean, you do say that, and I'm glad you do, Heather. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, unlike the sustainability profession in general, which is... Uh, quite balanced between uh, men and women. In fact, I think there are actually statistically more now, more women than men in corporate sustainability. I have to say this has been a, a lot more uh, of a male review in terms of uh, uh, in terms mm. of the people who are here. And I, and I hear comments mm. about that too, that this uh, uh, certainly uh, at the delegate level, at the diplomacy level, Uh, there was a picture at the very beginning of COP where everyone was on stage and it was, there were like seven women out of a hundred and some, right. you know, almost 200 countries. And, and I think that that also uh, is true on the corporate side too. So I, and I've, and I'm not saying it's, it's all that I've seen uh, a, a lot of women that I know from, from Europe and the, in the States and, and from South America who are here, but it does feel that this is still uh, uh, overly male population. And I know that just in a, in a world where women hold up as, uh, as, as they, Nick Kristoff says, half the sky, uh, we really need to have more representation. Absolutely. I think it might also have to do with the location, um, the specific country too. I wonder if that had a, yeah. an impact on who was willing to go. It, but yeah, yeah, it, I don't know. It, 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 it could, Heather. And, and I think it's also appropriate to talk a little bit about the Egyptian government and, and, and what they have made the UN, uh, some of the rules that they've uh, enforced uh, through the UN uh, in terms of protest, in terms of dissent, yep. in terms of activism. Uh, activists are uh, certainly the, the Egyptian activists, but it, it also is true for the, uh, those from around, are, are not allowed to say the name of a specific company, uh, company or country. They're not allowed to be critical of anything. And yeah. aside from the fact that the, uh, that the protest area is 
kilometers from here. No one who is attending in the, the blue zone, the delegates, uh, and, and, and some of the rest of us are ever going to hear from them. Um, and so I think that's been a, a sub-theme of this, that, that human rights and the right to dissent and the right to uh, for free speech is not prevalent here at all at COP. Okay. So we've talked a lot about COP. Some other things happened this week uh, related to COP and not. So why don't we go now to the Week in Review? Heather, I couldn't help but notice uh, some some stories on deforestation. It's uh, certainly one of the themes here. Uh, talk about the, the two stories that you picked on uh, on that topic. Yeah, so I picked what, one of the things that we as the uh, Green Biz editorial team have been trying to do differently with this COP coverage than in the past is really go and look at what happened last year and try to hold people's feet to the fire, if you will. And so there's a couple of stories that we've published uh, in the last few days on deforestation. And one is by uh, our colleague, Teresa Lieb, who is actually there with you, uh, our senior analyst for food systems. And she, um, her headline is, a deforestation roadmap that leaves a lot to be desired. So her piece looks at the announcement last year by Cargill, ADM, Archer Daniels, Midland, Bungie, and others um, on commodities. So commodities soy, palm oil, um, you know, some of the biggest commodity traders in the world. And the pledge they made last year to um, eliminate commodity-driven deforestation and align their supply chain emissions with a 1.5 degrees Celsius climate pathway, the usual um, language. Now, what Teresa takes issue with is a lot of inconsistencies in the language that they use to describe deforestation in their roadmaps. some some of it talks about getting rid of illegal deforestation, which is pretty much, yeah, that's basically following the law. Um, critical, I like to your point uh, of how excited the Brazilian delegation there was to see the president elect and um, the people that were there from the indigenous world who were celebrating that. You know, many of these commodity traders uh, don't say anything about how the communities should be involved with their deforestation policies. They haven't um, committed to much transparency. So she's pretty critical of where they've gone, where they've, where they've come in the last year. So, you know, I'm, 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 that's one of the reasons I was questioning your optimism there, because when you look at what's happened from year to year, you don't see a lot. Um, on the, the countryside, uh, some, some progress, some, some, there was last year, uh, 12 countries pledged 12 billion in funding um, through the COP26 Global Forest Finance Pledge to address deforestation. They, um, that money is to be spent was to be spent between 2021 and 2025. So far, they've spent uh, about 2.7 billion of that, which is that's not no small chump change. Um, we've got uh, some other money that was going to be spent to the, to the point I was making before uh, on supporting. Indigenous peoples and local communities in their forests at $1.7 billion was, was promised last year. Uh, so far, about 19% of that um, has been delivered. So we've got, um, we've got sort of, I guess, spotty progress. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that this just continues to be a, a big deal. That's, again, why 
Brazil is so excited um, that they have finally have someone who's who's going to address deforestation again. I think the figure was that when um, uh, Lula was previously in office from like 2000, was it 2003 to 2006, that um, deforestation in the Amazon dropped by almost 44%. He did so much to help. So that's a, that's a cause for optimism. So what about, um, you know, anything else that I didn't mention on deforestation that you've heard there on the ground? So I think there is a lot more conversation than I recall in the past talking about uh, uh, forestry, land use, uh, nature-based solutions, of which forestry is obviously a huge part. So uh, again, I guess sticking with the optimistic uh, view of this, uh, this, this is definitely taking root here uh, in in uh, at COP27. I think we're going to, you know, hear a lot more of in the implementation side. And, you know, this is hard, slow moving stuff. I mean, we're talking about trees for one thing, but we're also talking about transforming uh, uh, massive uh, industries and, and supply chains. So um, can we move over to another story that has to do with moving supply chains? Sure. Love to. Go yeah. for it. Well, this is what, this is one that our colleague Dylan Siegler wrote, uh, wrote this week uh, in in the Green Buzz newsletter and published on the site, and it's about mid-sized companies in supply chains and and how you know sort of what they wish uh, that their their big customers, their big the big corporate uh, customers that they sell into, you know, understood about some of their needs and um, you know how uh, how big companies need to be working with. Uh, uh, mid-sized companies, maybe a little bit differently. Uh, you know, com- the big companies have, have, uh, you know, really, you know, picked the low-hanging fruit uh, on uh, in their own operations, and maybe with some of their biggest suppliers who are also under the pressure of their their investors and others to to improve their performance. But the small and mid-sized ones have been left out of this. And as we get into these, uh, uh, the possibility of the Securities and Exchange Commission rule in the United States is going to uh, um, uh, force companies to look at their s- scope three, their supply chains, uh, bringing in the small mid-sized companies is going to be a bigger piece of this. So um, I, I love, you know, Dylan, Dylan got into this use as a uh, sort of a dating relationship metaphor about how they, <laughs> these, uh, they need a yeah. little bit more love, maybe candy and flowers or whatever it is. But I really encourage listeners to 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 read some of the insights here and and how, you know, the need for obviously things like communications and and how uh, to, you know, this conversation flows from the sales team to decision makers. And that often is a source of, of where things break down. So this is a topic we need to be looking at a lot more. And I'm, I'm glad we're looking at it now. I am too. Uh, I'm going to just make two comments before we go on to story number three. And that is that um, I love this topic because small businesses and mid-sized businesses are make what makes the world goes round. And we need them on board. And also, P.S., this is happening in Europe already through some of the disclosure rules there. Um, we, you know, any multinational company is going to be doing this for their supply partners in other parts of the world. So I think it's just a great, um, it's a great policy. And um, the other thing that really jumped out for me in that story was just the need to get more clear about the requirements, because that's where a lot of, I think, the you know, you're, are you are you are you into me or are you not into me? That's the kind of language that, uh, yeah, that yeah. we need to clarify. Just, just, <laughs> yeah, 
just not to go that back to into the dating you. analogy. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, speaking yep. of just not that into you, let's go over <laughs> to our last story that we're going to talk about yep. here, which is uh, the Republican rhetoric over ESG, where they recently warned 51 of the largest law firms in the United States that these are uh, some five U.S. Uh, Republican senators that certain ESG policies could run afoul of antitrust regulations. And I have to say, Heather. This is just an eye roller of a story that, uh, first of all, you know, the Republicans in the United States you know, government are historically all about market forces and letting the private sector do what they need to do. And here is the private sector saying we need to reduce risk. We need to uh, get more disclosure, more transparency about what the uh, social and environmental impacts of our, of our products and services are. And, and, and all of a sudden, Republicans saying, oh, no, you can't do that. And uh, they're going to they're trying every trick in the book and now targeting the law firms uh, yeah. that are, you know, representing the companies that are trying to, yeah, you know, integrate uh, risk reduction through uh, environmental, social and governance metrics. Um, so, yeah. yeah, from what I've been hearing, <laughs> and we, we talked a little bit to some some law firms and they said, yeah, this is a nothing burger. But I don't know. What do you think? It's yeah, it's just more rhetoric. But um, I think that the thing that that I found interesting was the antitrust um, element uh, in the suggestion in this this letter saying, oh, you're using your influence to force policies. It was sort of a, you know, like that, that sort of argument was just interesting, because it it is one of the reasons like, um, if you think about um, what First Movers Coalition is doing to try to uh, bond together to inspire investments in new technologies, they have to be really careful about how they promise money. Um, You can't, there are things you have to, you you can't do um, with your money (laughs) as as a company like that to, to inspire, you have to be very careful. So I do think um, that is um, a thing to to keep on notice. But I also want to point out that this letter was written before this Republicans failed to take back the Senate and they're all senators. So I just wanted to make that point. So, yeah, maybe they were a little overconfident. Yeah, a little bit. And there's also that line about uh, they, they used to talk about the media, but newspapers in particular uh, never challenge uh, uh, someone who buys ink by the barrel. Um, I don't think, you know, in this case of, of lawyer tra- challenging law firms uh, never challenge, uh, take on uh, uh, an, an industry that is by definition uh, litigious. Um, they have all the lawyers and all the money to, and all the time to, to fight these things. And, and so, um, you know, I think that this is uh, posturing. And again, before, you know, then it turns out they're not going to have that much power anyway, the senators, but others are going to be carrying this cause and it's going to show up again in the next election cycle. And, and it's just a shame that uh, <sighs> that the business can't figure stuff out and without interference from politicians, that used to be a no-no. Uh, let's keep Washington out of the boardroom. Let's let companies, you know, market forces govern things. That worked until some people didn't like what market forces were doing. And here we are. Blackhorn Ventures is relatively unique in the universe of climate tech VCs. For one thing, it focuses on enterprises that are, quote, redefining industrial resource efficiency, end quote, 
which doesn't generate quite as many headlines as blockchain firms or battery recycling startups. Joining me today on Green Biz 350 to talk more about the Blackhorn Ventures focus is Melissa Chung, Blackhorn Managing Partner. Hello, Melissa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. It is super to have you, finally. Thank you for being patient with me. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you, when we talked uh, in prep for this conversation, you mentioned that your portfolio spans a range of industries. I mean, I've seen construction-related startups, supply chain automation, robotics, spatial intelligence. What is the common thesis for these companies? It's quite, that's quite a range of different uh, focuses. Yeah, no, for sure. So, so as a little bit of background, so Blackhorn is an early stage venture firm focused at that seed and series A entry point for industrial companies that are targeting industrial resource efficiency, leveraging digital infrastructure to transform our, our, our industrial economy. So what that means is our, you know, we target the transportation, logistics, supply chain, the built environment, primarily construction tech and the energy sectors. And we think that some of the most compelling opportunities currently exist at the intersection of these three industries, which we see is, is holding, you know, just a, just a tremendous amount of opportunity tied to convergence between those sectors tied to electrification and, you know, just the, the connect the, you know, the IOT of, of everything and the fact that all of this is so interconnected. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the technologies that make this possible? Like, is you mentioned a convergence what what's really enabling this so i think again we look we look to leverage digital infrastructure so we think that there's just a, a confluence of certain factors that are that are all super timely um or create a timely opportunity today with kind of broad availability of bandwidth massive processing power and then just the abundance of connectivity and 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 the ability to transmit information at speeds that have, we've not seen before. So for us, we're primarily investing in software-based companies that are transforming industries by unlocking the value that is presented by those existing technologies. And most of those companies that we're targeting are companies that are really benefiting from you know, the, the ability to drive and identify savings for corporate customers from a B2B SaaS standpoint while addressing these issues that we think are creating macro tailwinds, um, you know, tied to labor shortages and um, the need for increased resiliency within our existing supply chain and logistics networks and the need for more visibility into energy security and the ability to procure more energy security broadly and so forth. So all of these, these factors kind of play into you know, what What makes this investment thesis really interesting and really timely. Great. You know, and I have a couple of follow-ups in there. Actually, I'm going to go to this one first because construction, it seems like a pretty old school sector, um, lots of old habits, um, lots of paper. How How is this playing in that industry? Like, why is now the time? You know, I mean, you mentioned a couple of things just a moment ago, but What's making the tip this tip there? Yeah, I think construction is a really unique um, industry in that it's it's historically lagged behind the rest of the economy with relation to digitization and the adoption of new technology. Uh, we, I think, if you just from a really plain and simple starting point, 
you have workers that are deskless and you don't, you don't, you have an entire labor force that hasn't really had the ability to sit at a desk and have access to PCs. So now with mobile phone accessibility and computing and processing power and just the, the ability to track and obtain information in the field, there's just a whole host of different applications that can be then overlaid and provided to customers at the enterprise level who don't have access to like a, a big picture or a window into what's actually happening within their, their workforces. So that I think you know, we, we've done quite a bit of work in construction tech. Um, we, you know, what, what some of those opportunities sit within, have like a FinTech overlay and others, um, you know, are, are tied to, you know, monitoring and tracking and accounting for the labor force and helping people, you know, just think about enhancing safety and improving um, the quality of, of job sites and, and reducing risk in the field for their labor force, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stick with this theme here for a moment. Sebel- several of your investments mm-hmm. center on modular construction. I think I picked out a couple of firm names here, Agoras, Toggle, Hyperframe. Hopefully I'm getting those names right. Yeah. But um, what's what's intriguing about this category and what potential do you see there in that modular construction space? Yeah, we think there, 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 I mean, I think there's been there's been a lot of capital and a lot of time, energy, and focus that's been put into the idea that construction itself, uh, the, the industry stands to benefit tremendously from the application of kind of basic industrial manufacturing tenants that we've seen adopted throughout other sectors in the industrial sector, right? I think the, the difference in the way we've approached it is we look for capital efficient business models that are leveraging the ability to use digital design, um, automation driven by robotics and um, access to kind of off-the-shelf hardware that can be used to augment and improve labor efficiency, for example, to automate certain processes in the construction value chain. So versus, I think the the mistake that we've seen made in, in relation to modular construction and and some of the more high profile failures um, within construction tech is that they've tried to do everything. And I think it has made, it just creates a, a value chain that becomes quite fragile. And so I think if you look at Agoras, for example, that's that's a company that we've invested in that's based in in San Diego and they they're targeting the residential home building sector. And again, leveraging digital design to take into account architectural drawings and specs to allow for a, a fairly significant degree of customization within um, you know a, a single family home. And they've then taken that process and panelized it. So within uh, a warehouse setting offsite, you know they have you know they've leveraged robotics and um, automated just that one process and have panelized home frames, house frames, which can then be installed on site in two days. So there, the pain point they're solving is, you know, typically framing out a a single family home takes like six to eight weeks. And I think in a, we all know that like in a rising interest rate environment, that becomes really challenging. Um, And there's just massive labor shortages, which make that even more challenging. So I think that's a 
that company, that's a great example of, you know, that our philosophy is look for opportunities again, to just automate and do one thing really well and solve a really, you know, big hair on fire problem that exists in the current value chain from a labor standpoint, and then make, you know, create a situation where customers just, they need to have that in order to improve their throughput and their profitability overall. You've mentioned the labor situation several times, and everyone does have the economy and the potential for a global recession on their mind. I have a couple of questions related to that. So first of all, just, you know, you talked about like saving jobs or not needing to hire people, but I'm just curious what the potential for job creation is related to this whole industrial resource efficiency thesis. Like what is the uh, potential for job creation? You know, it's interesting. I think that broadly there is this, this um, kind of common misconception that automation and AI are broadly to be labeled as a, as, as presenting threats to frontline job security within manufacturing construction and the broader supply chain. And in reality, I think a lot of the research that's come out of MIT and elsewhere uh, has has shown that there's there is in reality a massive labor shortage. I think that's probably not a surprise to any of us right now. I think in all sectors of the economy, we're seeing that. But with relation to the industrial workforce, one third of the skilled frontline worker labor pool is over the age of fifty. So you you know there the the ability and the the opportunity to leverage software and automation creates the opportunity to, to, you know, maintain the jobs that do exist onshore and keep them within the U.S. and and allows them to be competitive and to not need to be offshored. So we believe that there is a massive job creation opportunity, not only for skilled engineering and product roles within companies that are truly innovating within the space, but we think that there's also like a reskilling and upskilling opportunity to help all of that labor force, you know, be prepared for these like new economy jobs, right? So there is this need to collaborate and work really closely with, you know, enterprise, you know, companies and um, employers, customers of, of, you know, these, these automation and AI tools. And I think there's also a role for the public sector, right? There needs to be, I mean, obviously the solutions need to be integrated and there needs to be a collaborative approach to addressing what we see coming. But I think it, it's, again, the, the the transition to clean energy, the decarbonization of industrial sectors, there, there is a massive opportunity to generate millions of jobs. And, you know, I think it's, it's all, it, it becomes incumbent upon all of us to be part of that transition to help transition existing jobs and then to leverage these technologies to help to augment and improve the quality of, of jobs that exist out there right now in industrial sectors. How will the Inflation Reduction Act affect your firm's strategy, that and other incentives like some of the other um, new policies that the U.S. has adopted over the past 12 months? You know, it's it's really, it's super interesting. A lot of people have put out pieces, you know, talking about the different opportunities that the um, Inflation Reduction Act or IRA, like what 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 that does and how that affects their investment thesis. And in reality, 
I don't think a lot changes for us. Um, we, you know, the, the sectors that we operate in, there is this sort of an, an inherent or, or, you know, naturally aligned set of collinear climate or decarbonization outcomes that goes hand in hand with the scaling of our resource efficiency technologies. And, um, you know, so I think we will still continue to target the, the same sectors that we we have for the past five years. Um, I do think that there's going to be a great deal of acceleration within certain sectors, particularly around grid modernization and, um, you know, as it pertains to energy broadly, and then the 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 desire and the push to retrofit and improve the energy efficiency of ex the existing building stock on a global basis from a, from a built environment standpoint. And then, you know, on a, you know, transportation level, they, there is also this, this massive opportunity created by the transition to EVs. And so I think all of these, these different opportunities um, will, there's just going to be more momentum, like things will happen faster. And while some of the tax incentives and like tax credits are kind of blunt instruments overall, I do think that there's going to be really dramatic change that's made possible because of how fast some of that will all happen. Um, so it's exciting for us, but I think we just want to be mindful and, and understand on a more micro level how that affects individual portfolio company outcomes, because while it presents opportunities, it can also just, you know, create the need for some quick turns to be made and iteration within a company's business model and, and, and their plan. Got it. I have one final question for you. Um, it's something that I think about a lot as, as new companies are formed. And, uh, you know, I look at organizations like Allbirds, which was founded, you know, very much social and sustainability missions driven right from the beginning, right? They have this thesis of diversity, equity, yeah. inclusion, and so forth. So how can entrepreneurs build that into their business model at an early stage? And how does Blackhorn support that? I love this question. This is like an area that's like of deep interest for, for me personally, um, as well as something that we as a firm have been prioritizing a lot lately. So we actually just, we just did a whole overhaul of our, our internal impact program. So rather than thinking about it from just an ESG perspective, we actually have, uh, you know, an ESG policy, a DEI policy, and an impact policy that we're using and implementing at the portfolio company level. So, you know, I think for us, we, we try to be really cognizant and realistic about the fact that, you know, as, as seed and series A stage investors, a lot of these companies are just very, it, you know, they have small teams, they're thinly resourced, they're trying to run at walls and, you know, and all sorts of different direct and pulled other, you know, founders are pulled in different directions at different times. And so we, we want to be viewed as a constructive partner. And we believe that if there are strong foundations on all of, in all of these different areas that are put in place early, it will help companies grow to be just stronger, better, you know, more, more investable corporate citizens in the, in the long run. So we have committed to working with those companies in partnership, and it's actually structured into our term sheets, and then we actually have it in our deal docs at closing as well. We've committed to working with them to implement a stage-appropriate 
set of DEI and ESG policies for them as as companies. And then we have a whole set of reporting requirements then that we then will go out and, and ask them to report against on an annual basis. And so it's it's not, it's it's we've made made it really clear we want to be viewed as a partner and there's not a like right or wrong answer and and the the way the way that a reporting survey is completed. We just want to make sure we're showing progress. And we find that just by asking the question, sometimes, especially around DEI, you know, it forces a leadership team, uh, you know, founders to be more mindful about the choices they're making as they look to go to grow and build their team over time. So, you know, I think no, no one argues. We, we actually have, we've, we've, we've been, this new policy has been met with, you know, a lot of enthusiasm. Um, we were a little bit worried that there might be some apprehension, you know, initially, but in general, I think everyone that we've, you know, of the, of the nine companies that we've invested into data to this new fund, every company has, you know, been really positive about their, and, and, and just indicated a strong degree of willingness to really, be, you know, work with us to help develop and shape their, their policies, because they know that in the long term it'll be a really valuable long-term investment for them. That is fabulous. Melissa, thank you for joining us on the podcast this week. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. You just heard from Melissa Chung, managing partner with Blackhorn Ventures. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our seven, count them, seven free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. And if you want to send us your comments, questions, and tips, we're all ears and eyes. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be off next week to celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States. Uh, But we'll be back on December 2nd with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, to our U.S. listeners, have a great Thanksgiving weekend with your friends and family. And from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Spira, a Burdantics Green Quadrant Award winner. Get the information, tools, and advice you need for your environmental, social, and governance journey at spira.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric. Climate change is here, and so is the requirement to understand and report the risks that it brings to your business. As your partner in sustainability, Schneider Electric can help you navigate the winds of change. To see how, visit se.com forward slash climate risk.